Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com Hi everyone, uh, welcome to Diane Snow's History. I met a listener the other day uh, and she came up to me and said I was listening to all of your History hits on a journey driving across Europe, and um, and and the first thing that came to her mind as a source of praise, she said, "They're short." So, uh, thank you. But she also did say, she also did say it's annoying having to listen to the advert on the front. And you know what? I understand that. I understand that. that's why I keep telling you in the advert to go and subscribe to History Hit TV because there are no adverts if you listen to it on our on our app. They're all there, advert-free, all the all the back catalogue of podcasts, all the new ones, historyhit.tv, go and listen to that. But the second point is, I, on the advert thing, it's important to say, like, the advert is currently what is paying for History Hit. Like, that is how we're making all this work. That's how I'm able to, uh, you know, go to Vinderlander and do that cool podcast with the Burleys this week. It's working. It's paying for the excellent Laura to find the best guests for this podcast. It's paying for the brilliant Ollie to come and film this extraordinary Dutch resistance heroine who escaped death at the hands of the Nazis in Ravensbrück. Me and Ollie were filming her with actual cameras yesterday. That was paid for by the adverts that are annoying. It's paying for a load of geophysical surveys of an exciting British battlefield that we may be able to reveal the location of in the next few months. So thank you for listening to those adverts. I hope you continue listening into the autumn, into the fall, because we've got lots of exciting stuff coming up. Um, this one is also exciting. This is Professor Susanna Lipscomb. She's been on this podcast so many times, she might as well be hosting it. Professor Susanna Lipscomb is one of my oldest friends in history. She's incredibly talented. She's a Tudor historian. Uh, she's also a TV presenter, broadcaster in her own right. Uh, she received the ultimate accolade the other day from the one and only Hilary Mantel author of the greatest trilogy of books in the English language. Uh, she wrote, at the back of one of her books, anyone who's interested in the subject, go and read the wonderful Susanna Lipscomb. I mean, you can die happy when you get that written about you from such a genius. Uh, so this is an episode about one of her latest books. She's produced a history of magic. If you do want to go to History Hit uh, TV and become a subscriber, like thousands of people at the moment, I mean, it's just wild over there. Uh, please go to historyhit.tv. Uh, sign up using the code POD1, P-O-D-1, and you get to listen to all these podcasts without advertisements on the front. Also, you get all the back episodes, which are not available anywhere else in the world. So I'll see you over there. In the meantime, enjoy this episode with 
Professor Susanna Lipscomb. Professor Susanna Lipscomb, welcome back on the podcast. Thank you. It's a delight to be here. Always lovely to see you. I mean, you've been on so many times, it must be getting very boring. But the reason you've been on this time is because you keep writing these goddamn books. This is extraordinary. Well, this, this, time, this time I've just written the foreword. I haven't written the whole book. But, you know, I'm, I'm trying. I'm trying. You're a powerhouse uh, and, you know, starting a family. I don't know how you do it, really. This is a kind of history of magic and superstition. If you hold the view that I do, that once we understand something, we call it science, but, like, magic doesn't really kind of exist. So why write a history of it? What's the point? Well, I suppose throughout the centuries that have passed, there's been so much that people didn't understand, right? There's been so much that's been inexplicable. And magic helps you tilt the balance in favour of trying to control what you can't control. I think, I think that's why people have wanted to harness the power of magic. Um, and, you know, whether that's trying to control, um, you know, life after death or, try, you know, trying to... Or whether it's about trying to protect your crops or trying to get pregnant when you can't get pregnant or to help your child get well when they're sick. I think a lot of it is about power, really. It's about power and trying to trying to uh, ensure that there's some recourse when there's so much that's beyond um, one's own agency. And so presumably what, studying people's pra- magical practices, if that's the right word, presumably that tells us a lot about the society that they're from. Yeah, it tells us about their concerns and their preoccupations. And it often tells us a lot about those who don't have access to mainstream power in that society as well. Although sometimes um, magical practitioners were really at the heart of things. But a bunch of the time also they were people who otherwise you know didn't have access to any public power and so were attempting to use magical practices in order to uh to change that as well let's go back to the beginning because this book is such a fabulous comprehensive survey let's go back all the way uh what about in the ancient world that mag- what's going on with the magic in the ancient world because i'm get- i'm on twitter at the moment it's a hot day in the uk and everyone is talking about animal sacrifices and rain dances and stuff. And it strikes me, you know, when you look at the divination, people looking at entrails of animals, um, you know, the ancient authors are full of magic. Yeah, I should have looked up and see if there was any specific cures, to, you know, for, for dry spells. Um, but yeah, and if we go back, the earliest opportunity to, to find in history of practicing magic appears to be like about 4,000 years before the Common Era. So ancient Mesopotamia, modern day Iraq. Um, and there's evidence there from the palace library of an Assyrian king called Ashurbanipal, who had hundreds of clay cuneiform uh, tablets in that library, and they are inscribed with spells and incantations. So, you know, we, we have to go a pretty long way back to get to the beginnings of magical practice. And then, of course, we've got ancient Persia. Herodotus talks about the Magi in ancient Persia who are interpreting dreams and who are intoning over the flesh of sacrificial animals um, and accusations of sorcery in ancient Persia were pretty serious like you could if you were accused of sorcery um, the you could have molten metal poured over your tongue to determine guilt I'm not quite sure how it determined guilt but that's what they did and then in ancient Greece as, the, as far as I can tell it's the first time we see the use of wands and also potions. Again, um, looking at the Odyssey, the Homer's Odyssey, we've got Odysseus taking a potion uh, made of uh, moly, which is a kind of magical herb, to stop Circe turning him into a pig. Um, and one of the key concepts in ancient Greek magic is um, about binding. So trying to bind 
sort of physical or intellectual attributes of your victim to your own will. So, you know, whether you've got clay or metal figures that are literally sort of bound and we found them or we found um, papyrus with incantations on that start, I bind or whatever. And a lot of that is imported into ancient Rome. One of my favourite things about ancient Rome is the use of amulets is quite popular there. And it was normal for Roman boys to wear the bulla, which is a, a, a phallus-shaped charm to protect against evil spirits. Um, but it, the book also covers, uh, you know, sort of ancient Japan, for example. And that's an amazing example where you've got um, occult practitioners, omniaji, who are um, <laughs> mainstream practitioners. And they, they, they become court officials. They, there's even a divination bureau uh, that appoints them. And that exists get this, up until 1868, when the Emperor Meiji disbands it. So a divination bureau. Um, and they, they're doing things like exorcisms and you know rituals to determine whether X person can come into the court and that sort of thing. Um, that's very cool. When you were like working on this project, were you struck by what joins us, what binds us together as humans, our common humanity? Yeah, I think so. It feels really amazing to look at all the examples or, you know, the, 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 there are the, the rituals and the spells and the incantations or whatever it is, the practices themselves may change, but they have on the whole sort of broadly similar concerns. And uh, it is incredible when you have a look at a survey like this to see similar beliefs popping up all over the place. And, and obviously it's sort of difficult because you don't want to focus on the, the similarity to the extent of ignoring the particularity. You know, if you think of the um, Pitt Rivers Museum, <laughs> like that was criticised for, for years um, in Oxford because um, it gathers together, say, like all of the fetishes that, or, you know, all of the shrunken heads or, you know, like from different places and makes a parallel between them. But at the same time, you know, so for example, um, I got really fascinated in reading this book about practices relating to divination. One of the things that we most can't control as humans is that we live in linear time and we can't see the future. So we uh, have been fascinated with trying to uh, predict what it's going to be. And people have used all manner of things. So in ancient China, they would cast yarrow stalks, uh, clearomancy. And I put this on Twitter a few days ago and someone tells me, you can go into a Chinese uh, medical shop today and buy yarrow stalks. You can still do this. Anyway. Um, or again, back to Homer, you know, we've got divination there. Achilles um, is said to consult, is told to consult, or he suggests, sorry, consulting um, uh, an interpreter of dreams to try and figure out why the god Apollo is angry with the Greeks. Um, and in ancient Greek, they uh, were particularly concerned with observing the flight of birds to try and uh, define the future or um, ancient Rome they are interested in animal entrails so the color of livers which is called harrow spicy in the you know the Mexica the Aztecs they scatter maize kernels and patterns on the ground um, and some of these things have just got the most fantastic names you know um, my favorite I think is from medieval Byzantium, and it's called um, Chromistomomancy, which is interpreting horses' nays. Although the, actually the Byzantine uh, also have paleomancy, which is about interpreting uh, inadvertent bodily twitches. Well, that is interesting because, of course, now we're told that the 
great powers all have special bodily twitch experts who are re reading body language of other prime ministers and presidents, aren't we? So that has actually surely come back into fashion. So, uh, okay, what about, so I'm, I'm, that's brilliant, love divination. There's a lot of alchemy in the book, isn't there? And al alchemy feels like a kind of um, gateway drug to science, uh, but, um, and, but, but, but alchemy, especially in the, your period, you're so versed in the 16th century, um, you must see the alchemists, I mean, there was a sort of respectability about alchemists, wasn't there? Yeah, there certainly was. I mean, in the 16th century, it's mainstream. Um, and actually, one of the reasons we don't perhaps, perhaps we don't know as much about this as we could do is that one of the major sources used for the 16th century is um the state papers that were all gathered together and calendared i.e put in chronological order and typed up basically in the 19th century and these 19th century men choosing which state papers were important didn't think the ones about magic were that important so there's a whole there's a lot of stuff in the manuscripts that hasn't really made it into much of the normal discourse. But yeah, so Dr. John Dee, obviously famously an alchemist, but also people like William Cecil and Sir Thomas Smith. So Queen Elizabeth I's court was riddled with alchemists and she actually had alchemical laboratories at her court. But it goes back much further. The word alchemy comes from alchemia which is Arabic, and it means transmutation. So it's about trying to change one substance into another. And uh, you're absolutely right about it being the sort of gateway to science because people like the 9th century Arab scholar Al-Razi were uh, basically early chemists. So they are people who are coming up with the idea of having laboratories and distillation. Um, and uh, and it's actually even practised in ancient China even before that as well. But the in the Renaissance, it, the focus becomes comes to trying to find the philosopher's stone so that the 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 thing that will help you uh, change base metals into gold and will help you cure illness and attain immortality and that's the focus and the other thing to connect this with science is that people go on believing this for quite a while so Isaac Newton you know one of the uh, founders of the scientific revolution was um, uh, an alchemist he undertook alchemical experiments he read alchemical texts heard of him yeah no i mean that's extra i find that i, th I think that's fa i think that relationship so fa join us this month on gone medieval from history hit i'm matt lewis and i'm eleanor yanaga this april dive into our special mini series with the help of leading experts we're tracing the foundations of england by exploring the country's most powerful anglo-saxon kingdoms we'll be looking at northumbria Mercia and Wessex, as well as the rulers and their councils who helped shape a nation. Make sure to get every episode by listening and following Gone Medieval from History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. Um, what about, okay, so uh, another thing you cover, which I like, is similar to the Philosopher's Stone objects. Uh, magical objects. I see. I'm in in honour of this interview. I'm wearing my lucky charm. You see, this my my kids made me this little shell necklace, and I had this strange attachment to it. I'm not really a, a object kind of guy, but I have this strange attachment, and it's uh, my lucky charm. And so um, I thought, I'd, like, this is my little bit of magic. Um, what kind of things have you have you come across? Yeah, yeah. So amulets are the a crucial thing. So warding off evil, really. So um, basically stones and objects can often be thought to be receptacles of magical power so you in ancient greece you've got um 
hematite, which was thought to protect unborn babies, and jasper to cure stomach infections. Um, in ancient Greece, jade was thought to keep away evil spirits. Um, and in medieval Byzantium, sardonyx was thought to help protect against miscarriages. So quite often you would wear one of these because you could put it in a piece of wood or a piece of bone and then you could wear it just as you're wearing your shell. And um, and obviously the modern version of these are the kind of talismans of St Christopher's, uh, you know, medallions or um, the, the those cats with the raised paws you see um, in shops often or lucky mascots of sports. Um, but the other thing about, apart from that, and then also in the 16th century, it's quite often things like witches' bottles and shoes in chimneys and silver coins and stuff to protect against malevolent spirits. But this idea goes back, uh, you know, to ancient Egypt, scarab beetles, or um, ancient Islam, the Hamsa, the, the Hand of Fatima. So it's been really common. Um, and I think one of the things is one of the parts of it is basically the, the i think at the heart of the idea about objects as intermediaries is, is that they um they there's transference so they will take the evil spirit as opposed to you and in a similar way it's been thought things like um you know you could use objects or animals to heal yourself if you had plague buboes put a live chicken against those plague buboes and the 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 illness will transfer to the bird um or more uh, malignantly, poppets. So, you know, voodoo dolls, figures shaped to look like somebody and you, you do harm to that doll in order to do harm to um, the person. And this is, but this is going on. What's amazing is how many places have poppets like around the world, how common this is. Um, you know, you find it in Haiti, and, um, but you also find it in... 1612 in Lancashire in the Pendle witch trials, you know, clay figures um, being uh, pricked with a thorn or a, a pin to cause pain. Well, you once tweeted a uh, royal advice uh, manual, pamphlet, written about how to cure aching stomach and that was to lie with a beautiful maiden. Um, but that does kind of remind me of Herbal Dorm, because this is magic, it's such a fascinating subject, isn't it? Because some of it, like Poppets, is just balls. And then others was obviously kind of on, was true because it was proto science. So herbal healers and and remedies, we now go oh look at that you know it turns out that that is a like an antibiotic or an antiscorbutic or so that's a whole part of magic that's been hived off and turned into science hasn't it? So do you, you cover that as well? I presume. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, I in fact so well, to quote you back at yourself, I remember once you gave a talk about the value of history and you were talking about how we so often say that history is not useful because so much of it, when it works, it's become something else. Like, so, it, it, you know, the historical experiments uh, with, you know, uh, alchemy becomes chemistry, and then they're like, that's our subject. It's like, well, no, actually, it's ours, really. But um, so, you know, or whatever it is, the successes of, uh, of things. So, yes, absolutely, the therapeutic qualities of plants, um, you know, sage to heal fevers, uh, aloe vera to treat burns, things that work, but also... Um, you know, for example, basil to calm your mind. Now, I quite often put a few drops of basil oil in, uh, you know, one of those diffusers in here when I'm trying to focus. And I think that's fine. I think that works. Basil was also thought, though, to create wealth. And so far, it hasn't managed to do that. But, you know, um, or patchouli, which is thought to be an aphrodisiac. Um, mistletoe was thought by the Druids, the Celtic Druids, to bring fertility. And then one of the sort of most difficult plants of all was mandrake 
which uh, was thought to be an aphrodisiac and thought to be a cure for sterility. But it was also thought that it would scream as you pulled it out of the ground and that its scream would kill anyone who heard it. Um, so I so I guess, I don't know, you know, what's going on there? Is that just so you don't try? <laughs> so you're like, anyway, but the, the, the thinking behind that is sympathetic magic. So the idea is that, as you well know, that the, that the healer would find something in nature that looked like um, the ailment and then use that as a cure. So in medieval Europe to cure jaundice, for example, they would try making a potion of mashed earthworms and old urine. The idea being that the yellow colour would act to cure the yellow tint of the jaundice. And mandrake is supposed to be shaped like a human body, so it's supposed to cure lots of things. Crikey. And we should talk about magicians and witches. Do you see a similar thing with that you do in religion with the priesthood, where some societies develop kind of a quite hierarchical structure and you've got witches and wizards that need training in a se almost separate caste, where the others are a little bit more Protestant about it and, and where every, everyone can kind of do magic. I mean, you must, you must see that in different cultures. Yeah, so, I mean, in Slavic culture, what's sort of modern Ukraine, they had the, uh, the witches and wizards, I suppose, or male witches as well, were called Volkovi, and that was both men and women. Um, and they were you know, doing things like divination and protecting against bad spirits and healing, all the standard stuff, but they were also said to be able to shapeshift into becoming bears and wolves, and they were supposed to have dragon ancestors. But the most famous of those is a woman, a wild old woman called Baba Yaga, who still appears in Russian folktales, um, flying around in a mortar with a pestle. Um, but yeah, in some places, so I mean, when the those Japanese, the Japanese divination bureau I talked about, that's all men. But in some places, it's all women. So in the Norse magic uh, sorcerers, some of the most revered were female wand carriers, who had long uh, blue coats which were lined with white cat's fur and black lamb's wool and they also can shapeshift so shapeshifting it seems it's one of sort of the if you're on the higher echelons of witchery or wizardry you know shapeshifting and you know making things invisible yeah you've talked to me a lot about witchcraft and its persecution and in a perhaps less humorous way in 7th century france but I mean, what other kind of spells? I mean, a lot of the spells to do with medicine and, and and putting and is it putting the evil eye on people? Is it like sort of both for good luck and bad luck? And then and then the love. Let's come to the love because that's nice. That's nice magic, I think, isn't it? Yeah, love spells. Well, it depends. I mean, it depends what you do, I suppose. But um, yeah, there's all sorts of uh, things that can be done um, to try and cure sickness by um, tying, you know, herbs and salt into a a cow's tail that's fairly benign you know burying a dog not so benign but love right so there's a medieval jewish love spell which uh in which you fill an eggshell with your blood and the blood of your intended there's, there's not much clue about how you get that but um once you've got that uh you write both your names in blood on the shell and then bury it and that apparently promises instant results well, you and I have talked a lot about sort of you're you're obviously a world expert in uh, the Tudors, and and your recent book is astonishing on on France or uh, French history as well. So please go back and listen to those podcasts. So we're not going to talk too much about that period, because I actually would love to go on to something that I've seen a little bit recently. I've had friends and close people to me that have lost loved ones, and they're quite fascinated by spiritualism, the idea that you can talk to people after death. And it's very difficult for me because I, I know a little bit about it. And I know that particularly it was particularly popular after the First World War with these vast numbers of bereaved families were 
frankly taken for a ride by various sort of spiritualists who said you know i can i can talk to your you you could been talked to your deceased son you know these young boys through me and stuff so i'm quite it's very it's been tricky because that that seems to linger in our society this, this urge to speak through mediums um is that something that's recent or is, is that, has that have you do you see that all the way back through history in its modern form the idea of having séances um that you can communicate with dead the dead through a medium um in the west that's been since about uh, the 1840s there was a, a couple of sisters in New York called Maggie and Kate Fox who um, claimed they could commune with the dead and then it got particularly popular in America following the American Civil War exactly as it did after the First World War because of all these lost loved ones um, and it gained popularity because celebrities endorsed it and Back to the science magic question, what's really interesting is you've got people like William Crookes, who was a leading chemist, the president of the Royal Society, supporting spiritualism. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, the man who invents, <laughs> you know, the most forensic-minded detective of the age. And Conan Doyle was also a member of something called um, the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn, which was a kind of esoteric... Um, secretive society that you had to be initiated into and that uh, assumed that there were planes of consciousness and that you could rise sort of mi- to a mystical awakening through that. So there was a, there was a sense in which um, there was, a, a, I think, a hunger for this sort of spiritual belief in the 19th century. And, and if you think back towards the beginning of the 19th century, uh, end of the 18th century, Gothic literature, of course, is very popular. If you think of the Castle of Otranto and Frankenstein and all that stuff, so, there's a real um, tending towards uh, that that spiritual nature. And I think I think I think ultimately it just boils down to the fact that death just seems too final, and that we don't we don't understand. My lit my lovely literary agent died two months ago, and. I remember what was on the night that I heard the news, just going for a walk and thinking, and, and just really genuinely asking the question, but, but, but where has she gone? Do you know what I mean? Well, what, that, what, what, like asking and and really being faced with the most basic of ideas of of loss and of the fact that everybody I love will die if I don't die before, you know, you know, before that. And I think it's just it's just such a hard idea to grapple with. So it it makes a lot of sense that people are looking for an answer and I think you're all you're completely right that lots of people have taken people for a ride as a result of that have played on that loss and um you know been total charlatans what and we got um Dan Friedman on the chat here he's he's a hardcore man Dan's got gone straight for it he, he just thinks is this is this is, is magic just a way for intelligent people to gain influence within their societies like after working on this project are you left thinking all these magic you know all these so-called magicians and things that they're just looking to get to trick people and gain influence and power i'm sure that's true of some people i'm sure there were people for whom that applies but i also think that there were people and this is this is where we have to start to grapple with these with the reality of different people's beliefs about things there were people who genuinely believed that they were witches or wizards um or you know soothsayers in the past that they weren't seeking to hoodwink anybody, that they weren't trying to manipulate the systems of the society, that they genuinely believed it, and others believed it too. Then you have to start to look at the world in a slightly different way. 
and people, you know, not just confessing under torture, but genuinely confessing without torture to say, yes, I am a witch. That makes you think about people's frameworks of belief as being very different from our own. Adrian says, what's the sort of dividing line between belief in magic and, and religious faith? Yeah, it's a really good question because quite a lot of the time there've been really blurred lines. So, for example, much of what we call voodoo, but more properly it's called voodoo and belief, um, is syncretic. In other words, it takes elements of Roman Catholicism, mixes them in. Um, and there are, you know, there's an 11th century English spell as a cure for dysentery, which in which you are, you know, you have to dig up a bramble root, which is a blimmin' hard thing to do, um, and say the Lord's Prayer nine times and then um, boil up the root with mugwort and milk until it turns red. And so there's, you've got that combination of, here, go do something in nature you know, and have some incantation, except the incantation happens to be a prayer, right? So you've got that absolute overlap. And the line between magic and miracle basically depends on the view of, of the eye of the beholder, I think. So we were talking about amulets and um, objects, but you've got someone like Charlemagne owning a couple of crystal spheres in which one of them's got a bit of the true cross and one of them's got, um, you know, a relic of the Virgin Mary and he thinks these protect him. So it depends who's drawing the line between the two, what is considered orthodox and what is not. Well, you know what, everyone? Thank you very much, Professor Lipscomb. That was um, fantastic. Susanna, what is the book called? Okay, the book is called A History of Magic, Witchcraft and the Occult. It's published by DK, and you can get it in all good stores. Although I would particularly say that there's a shop called Fox Lane Books up in North Yorkshire, an independent bookshop that I've teamed up with. If you want me to sign a copy or dedicate it, I will put a book plate in it if you buy it from them. So look them up, Fox Lane Books. What's your next big project? What's your next big book? Next big book is about... Um, six women who aren't that terribly well known um, they were married to this big fat chap at the beginning of the 16th century um, he killed a couple of them uh, divorced a couple of them um, uh, one died in childbirth and another survived I wonder if you can guess Susie Professor Lipscomb thank you very much for coming on this podcast Hi everyone, it's me, Dan Snow. Just a quick request. It's so annoying and I hate it when other podcasts do this, but now I'm doing it and I hate myself. Please, please go onto iTunes, wherever you get your podcasts and give us a five-star rating and a review. It really helps, basically boosts up the chart, which is good. And then more people listen, which is nice. So if you could do that, I'd be very grateful. I understand if you don't subscribe to my TV channel. I understand if you don't buy my calendar, but this is free. Come on, do me a favor. Thanks. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dan Snow's History. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favour. Don't forget you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of TV documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe. As a special gift, you can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use code DANSNOW at checkout.